0: So this is the Christmas season. This is the time when we get to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I loved singing the Christmas carols this morning. Come let us adore Him. Oh, that's just so powerful to have us all worshiping Christ in that way. So this is the Christmas season. And to help us prepare our hearts and to focus on Christ, I'm going to take today and next Friday and preach on two prophecies of Jesus from the book of Isaiah. Two prophecies from Isaiah. And one of the reasons it's so important to study prophecy, the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, is because God can use that powerfully to strengthen our faith. That's what I've experienced. Every follower of Jesus will have times when our faith is not strong. We will all have times where we're filled with discouragement or fear, where we're just exhausted from battling against sin or from going through a trial, or we're just feeling far from God. I mean, every follower of Jesus, has times like that. And so what do you do at those times when you're weak in faith? What do you do? Well, one thing that I have found so helpful is to to take a look at the massive historical evidence for the truth of the scriptures, for the reality of God, and for Jesus Christ. To look at the massive historical evidence, and especially prophecies, Because as I've done that, time and again, God has used that to stir my heart. Here's how it works for me. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. When you have a book which accurately predicts events hundreds of years ahead of time, that book's not from human beings. Because no human being knows events that are going to take place a hundred years ahead of time, let alone like a day or two. We just don't know. Take the U.S. elections recently. Nobody would have called it, right? Okay? Nobody. And so if you have a book that's full of predictions, prophecies about what's going to take place hundreds of years from now, and those take place. Whoa! This is from God. There is a God. He's given us a book. And not only that, but the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled those prophecies that the Old Testament gave hundreds of years ago about the Messiah shows that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So, it strengthens my faith. There's a God. The Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God who came and was born of the Virgin Mary. This is all true. And when you open up the Scriptures and you pray over those prophecies, the Holy Spirit will take those truths and strengthen your heart, and your faith will rise, and peace will come, and worries will subside, and God will strengthen us. So here's what I'm praying God will do this morning. Some of you are not weak in faith this morning. Some of you are strong in faith this morning, okay? So you got to stay here anyway. Here's why. Because I'm praying that God will help you learn this passage so that when you are weak in faith, you can pull this passage out and have the Lord strengthen your faith through it. Others of you are weak in faith this morning. And I'm praying that as a result of looking at this passage, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and your heart today and you will sense your faith rising And you'll see Jesus is in control of this problem. He's going to strengthen me for this. I can trust him for this. Your faith will rise, and you will leave here stronger than when you came in. So some of you are strong in faith. Some of you are weak in faith. I would guess some of you don't have any faith this morning. You're you're visiting this morning. You're not sure there's a God. You're not sure about Jesus. We are glad you're here. And here's what I'm praying will happen is that as a result of studying this passage, Maybe at least the door will, be, will open just a chink in your heart. You'll think, maybe. Maybe there is a God. Maybe Jesus really is the Son of God. And, and that this could move you ahead, and we trust you'll come to the place where you see Jesus Christ, and you receive him, and you're reconciled to God. You're forgiven for your sins. That's our longing for you. So that's where we're going this morning. Are you ready? Isaiah chapter 9. Let's turn there. Powerful passage. Let's start with verse 1. Look at what we read. All all the verses will be up here on the screen, Uh, but if you have your own Bible that you can open up, you can circle words and put notes in the margins. We always recommend that, but they'll be up here on the screen for your convenience. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. Isaiah says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, speaking of God, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, what is that talking about? All right, let me try to put that in context, context for you. So let's start with this question. What happened to Zebulun, and Naphtali, and Galilee. Now, here's a map. Okay, there it is. Now, notice there we got Naphtali right there, and we got Zebulun right there, and here's the Sea of Galilee right there. So, this prophecy is about this whole northern portion of Israel. Jerusalem's down there somewhere. Okay, see that? So, this prophecy is about the northern part of Israel, the northern part of, of Palestine. That's what's being, being talked about here. So, what happened in that northern part? Verse 1 says that the northern part came into a time of gloom and contempt and anguish. Here's how. Those of you who've read the Old Testament, you know that God's people sinned repeatedly against God, turning their backs on God, rebelling against God into horrifying practices of sin. And God, in great patience, sent warnings to them, prophets who said, turn back, God will forgive you, turn back, God will receive you. But they just blew off the warnings and just continued in their sin. And finally, in his justice, God had to bring punishment upon them. So what God did was he brought the Assyrian nation from the north into, Gal- into Palestine. And they started with Naphtali and Zebulun and there around Galilee and killed people and destroyed cities and took everybody else captive, not everybody else, but most everybody else captive back with them to Assyria. That happened around 730 B.C. Isaiah's writing 30 years later, and he's talking about this part of Palestine which is now under darkness and in anguish and having experienced God's contempt, God's judgment, God's wrath, and God's anger. So that's what's happens to this area. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, read verse 1 again. And you'll see what's going on. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, so you've seen here what has happened, but this verse also talks about what God will do for Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. So what will God do for this area? In verses 1 through 5, God speaks through Isaiah about three astonishing blessings he's going to bring to this part of Israel. Three of them. First, he will bring them the light of a great glory. Okay, read verses 1, and then let's read verse 2 also. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Here, God's describing he's bringing this great light. But now, if you're reading this carefully, you probably noticed something puzzling here. I said this was a prophecy of what God would do in the future. But if it's what God's going to do in the future, how come the verbs are in the past tense? Did you catch that? For example, verse 2 says that they have seen a great light, not that they will see a great light. Did y'all catch that? Is it prophecy or is it already happened? Okay, now we know that verses 1 through 7 is all about a future prophecy because of verse 7. Okay, verse 7 says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And will is that past or future. Future. This isn't too hard, okay? Will is future tense. So, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we know that's describing all of verses 1 through 7. So this is prophecy. Well, why then are some of these verbs in the past tense? And here's why. I want to explain this to you so you'll be able to understand prophecy as you read it. God does this oftentimes with prophecies. He will describe future events in the past tense because he wants us to understand that those events are as certainly to come as if they had already happened. They are as certain as if they've already taken place. And Bible scholars call this the prophetic past tense. You'll see it in numerous prophecies in the Old Testament. We know it's future because other verses in the context show it's future, but some of the verbs are past tense because God wants you to see it's as sure as if it's already happened. Okay, so we all got the prophetic past tense for your Bible quiz coming up soon? Okay, good. So what God is promising here is, yes, this area has been under darkness, thick gloom, God's going to bring a a light of great glory to shine upon this area of Palestine. Don't you love that? Okay. Second, he will multiply the nation and increase its joy. Verse 3. Notice all these past tense verbs again. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So because of Assyria coming in, they're under gloom and darkness and discouragement, but there's going to be joy poured out upon this area. Not just joy, but joy like thieves have when they rejoice in the plunder. ha! <laughs> look at what we have, right? Or, or when farmers rejoice over a massive, bountiful harvest after months of working and labor. God's going to multiply the nation, increase its joy. Third, He will free them from all oppression and wars. Verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor that's all been on him, this yoke, the staff, this rod beating him, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. So God's going to break this oppression off of him like he did in Midian. Midian, that's where Gideon, God used Gideon, to remove the oppression of the Midianites from the people of Israel. They were under terrible oppression. God removed that. He'll do the same thing for these people. Verse 4. And then verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Hey, what's that talking about? Back in Old Testament times... The army that was defeated, their weapons and their uniforms would be burned by those who conquered them. So the defeated army's weapons, robes, boots, uniform, all be burned up by the conquering army. And so what God is saying here is that there's going to be a removal of, or the oppressions conquered, those who've been oppressed, oppressing you will be conquered, and war will be no more, removing war entirely. That's what God's going to do. So, three amazing blessings in these verses. God's going to bring this area the light of great glory. God's going to multiply the nation and increase its joy. And he's going to free them from all oppression and war. So, uh, amazing promises brought to Naphtali, this area of Galilee, Zebulun, this northern part of Israel. Now, how will God do this? This is amazing to read. Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 6. That word for shows that verses 6 and 7 give how God's going to bring these amazing blessings to this northern part of Israel, Palestine. How will God do this? Let's read verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. It's amazing. What? To us a son is given. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, those of you who've listened to Handel's Messiah lately recognize these words, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? The government will be upon his shoulders. Powerful, powerful. I would encourage you to listen to that this Christmas season, especially after digging deep into this passage here. So God is going to bring great blessing upon this area of Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, through having a child, a special child, a son be born. And in these verses, he gives us six powerful statements about this child. First, verse 6, the government will be upon his shoulder. Not a government, but the government's. That is, the authority, the government, not just the local, but all authority, all sovereignty, all dominion is going to be given to this child. This child will have all authority over everything. Second, verse 6, this child will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, that word wonderful has the idea of something that is like drop-dead astonishing, like breathtaking, wow, wow. And that's the idea here is that his counsel is going to be astonishing in its truth, and its power. Wonderful counselor. The counsel and wisdom he gives is amazing. Third, verse 6. This child will be called mighty God. That is incredible to read. This child will be mighty God. Now, Every other time that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's referring clearly to God. So we have every reason to think that's exactly what's being talked about here. In fact, in the very next chapter, look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. The exact same phrase is used, clearly referring to God. Isaiah 10, 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Exact same Hebrew word, El Gibor, right there. So what Isaiah, or what God is prophesying through Isaiah is that this child is going to be fully God. The child that will be born is going to be fully God. In other words, God is coming to earth in the person of this child. God is going to visit the world personally in the future, born as a baby. Incredible. Fourth, verse 6. This child will be called Everlasting Father. Now think of the perfect father. Okay, perfectly loving, faithfully providing, wisely guiding and counseling, uh, diligently protecting you. Just think of the perfect father. And that's how Jesus will be. Oops. That's how this child will be. I was, I'm coming to that point. That's, that's how this child will be to us. And it'll be, he will be this to us everlastingly. The moment you put your trust in him forever. Fifth, verse 6, this child will be called the prince of peace. In other words, his rule as prince will bring peace. Peace to the entire world. And peace to every individual who turns and, and trusts him. And one last, seventh, I'm sorry, sixth, in verse 7, He will be on the throne of David and over his kingdom, which means this child will be born genealogically in the line of David, King David. Now, King David was king around the year 1000 BC, 300 years before Isaiah was written. Well-known king of Israel. And this child who will be born will be genealogically the great, 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 great grandson of David. So very clear genealogical specifications given for this child. And this this child will be a king in the line of David, and his rule will bring peace and will bring justice and will bring righteousness forever. No end to the increase of his rule. You see that? Okay, so, so here's what God is prophesying through Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Okay, first of all, the people of Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee have been conquered and oppressed. They're under darkness. They're in gloom. But God is going to do three things. He's going to bring them the light of great glory. He's going to multiply the nation and increase its joy. And he's going to free them from all oppression and wars. And God's going to do this through the birth of a special child who will have the government, all authority upon his shoulders. He's going to be the wonderful counselor, He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace, and he will be in the line of David the King, whose rule and reign will never end. So, next question. Who is this child? Who is this child? This book of Isaiah was written around 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ, So as you look ahead in world history from 700 B.C., you look ahead, you know, 600 B.C., 500, is there any child who fulfills these qualifications, who fits these parameters? And the answer is absolutely. It's Jesus Christ. Let me explain why. First, Jesus was born in the line of David. That that narrows things down quite a bit, right? Can't just be any baby born. It's got to be a baby who is genealogically in, in the line of David. And that's what Jesus could do. His, his line was traced back to David. You see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, which means great, 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 great grandson, the son of Abraham. So Jesus was born in the line of David. Second, Jesus had authority over Everything. You can just see this in the way that he lived when he was here on earth. Jesus had authority to forgive sin, which is huge if you stop to think about it. Remember the story when um, the paralyzed man was lowered down through the roof um, in front of the house is all crowded. People couldn't get to him, so their friends lowered their paralyzed friend down. And remember Jesus' first words to him were, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders were and raged at that. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Because Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And the reason God can't forgive sins is because of what Jesus would do on the cross. You understand that, right? God doesn't sweep any sins under the rug. My sins, your sins, every sin that's ever been committed by anyone in this room and ever will be, will be punished. Either by Jesus being punished in our place on the cross or by the person being punished forever in hell. Those are the only options. We either are punished ourselves for our sin or we put our trust in Jesus Christ and are connected to his death on the cross and our sins are all forgiven through what he's done and we're reconciled to God the Father. And that's why Jesus could say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. He has authority to forgive sins. Jesus had authority over nature. Remember, one of my favorite stories, massive storm on the Sea of Galilee, gale force winds, huge waves, the sea-hardened disciples or fishermen, they're all panicked. And Jesus stands up and says, quiet, be still, calm. The winds and the waves obeyed him because all authority is on him. He has authority over sickness, he could speak to blind Bartimaeus's blind eyes. And they were healed. He could speak to this paralyzed man in front of him after he'd forgiven his sins. Stand up and walk. And he stood up and walked. He could heal withered arms, deformed limbs. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over evil spirits. We don't have authority over evil spirits in ourselves, apart from Christ, right? They're very powerful and they are wicked. I love the story because of the outcome of it of this poor woman that Jesus met who for 13 years had been bent over double by a spirit an evil spirit for 13 years bent over double and I love reading the gospel writers when Jesus saw her he felt compassion for her and he said I forget what he said but whatever he commanded the demon to leave and the demon left and She stood up first time in 13 years, whole, restored. And Jesus can command demons to leave. He can command them to go. He can command them to do whatever he wants them to do. And they must go because he has all authority. That's our Jesus. And that's what he said in Matthew 28, 18, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay, so we're trying to figure out who is this baby, who is this child, Jesus was in the, genealogically in the line of David, and Jesus has all authority. Third, Jesus is, is a wonderful counselor. I mean, his teachings are amazing when you read them. What they say is just astonishingly, it resonates, it's true, it's, and not only is it true, but it, it's powerful because when you read it and you trust it, your heart is changed, your heart is filled, you're freed. There's power, there's truth, Truly what his counsel is, his wisdom to us is wonderful, breathtaking, awesome. Here's what his opponents said about him. His opponents said this about him. John 4, John 7, 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. That's his opponents. And they were right. Fourth, Jesus was fully God. Jesus' actions showed that he was God. I already mentioned commanding a storm to stop. When was the last time you commanded a storm to stop? Okay. Humans don't command storms to stop. The one who created storms can command them to stop. And that's what he did. Jesus took five loaves and two fish and multiplied them to feed thousands of people. Because he's God. He has power over atoms and molecules. And he tells them what to do and they can do it. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. Come forth. And life re-entered Lazarus' dead corpse and he lived because Jesus is fully God. But, But it wasn't just Jesus' actions that showed he was fully God. He taught that he was fully God. Look at this verse in John 5, 18. John writes, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And he was. Because he was equal to God. And he is equal to God. So see, Jesus is fully God. Now the Bible does not teach that there's three gods. That's not what the Trinity teaches. The Bible teaches there is one God in three persons. There's God the Father. Then there's God the Son, Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to earth to be born of a virgin Mary. So there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and then there's God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And so Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is fully God. As Paul says, the fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. That's our Jesus Fifth, Jesus is the everlasting father. What this means is that as God, he is our perfect father. Perfectly loving, flawlessly faithful, providing, protecting, guiding forever. He's the everlasting father. Look at Isaiah 63, 16. This describes who Jesus is to us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. That's that's who Jesus is to us, and he's our everlasting father. He will be the everlasting father to everyone who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Jesus Christ, the everlasting father. Sixth, Jesus is the prince of peace. Everyone who trusts Jesus can know complete peace, no matter what trials or circumstances or difficulties you're going through, because... Jesus is in control of all of those circumstances and trials and difficulties, right? He's not worried. He's not saying, what's happening? He's in complete control of everything you're going through right now that's difficult. And it doesn't mean it's not hard, but you can be at peace. This is what he said, John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So yes, there will be tribulation. Some of you are experiencing tribulation right now, but you can be at peace because he's overcome the world. He's in control of the world. And Jesus will bring complete peace to this world, to this earth. Now that part of Isaiah's prophecy hasn't been completed yet. The rest of the Bible teaches that will happen when Jesus returns at the end of history. That's when wars will finally fully cease. But doesn't it bring you comfort that the day is coming when this world will be free from all war and all oppression. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Come quickly, Lord. Okay, seventh, Jesus' ministry focused on Zebulun and Naphtali and the area of Galilee. Okay, throughout the New Testament, when we read Jesus, he's described as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, you can see that in John one forty five. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, why was Jesus called Jesus of Nazareth? Well, it's because Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. It's because Jesus was raised in Nazareth. And because Nazareth is located. Okay, there's the Sea of Galilee right Uh-oh, my little pins. Oh, well, see where the Sea of Galilee is up at the top there? Okay, see the very bottom of the Sea of Galilee? If you just go over about one, two centimeters, that's where Nazareth is, okay? So there's right in this region of Galilee, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And Jesus did most of his ministry in the northern part of Israel, in this area of it's called Galilee in the New Testament times. And so Jesus did minister in Zebulun, Naphtali, and the area of Galilee. He went down to Jerusalem. He did travel around, but most of his ministry took place right there in the northern part, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee. And so when God prophesies that the people who've been in darkness are going to see a great light, they're going to see glory, that's what they saw in Jesus the light of God's glory in Jesus shone in this northern Galilee area. He went through northern Galilee healing thousands of people. Thousands were healed through him. Demons were set, I mean, people were set free from demons. He was teaching, bringing his wonderful teaching, breathtaking teaching. So, so the light of God's glory was shining in this area that had been in darkness in 730 BC. So we're asking the question, Who is this child? He started 700 BC and you look ahead. Is there any child, any baby born who fulfills these prophetic requirements? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus Christ is the one being prophesied here. 700 years before Christ, God prophesied through Isaiah that Jesus would be born. And God did this 700 years before Christ so that we could have additional evidence, historical evidence. So when our faith is weak, we can open up the book and say, yes, I see it, historical evidence, it's true. Even when our, we're not feeling it, even when our faith is weak, oh, it's true, it's true, it's gloriously true. So to see how powerful this is, let's go to the next slide. Look at this timeline, this is really helpful for me. So in 700 BC, Isaiah prophesies that a son will be born in the line of David, who will be God, have all authority, and who brings light and joy to Galilee. That's the prophecy. 700 BC, and then, boom, 0 AD, right? Whenever that exactly happens, Jesus is born in the line of David. He is fully God. He has all authority, and he brings light and joy to Galilee. See, do you see how powerfully this matches up? See how that works? Now, what does this mean for us? Let me give you eight takeaways. Now, I'm not expecting you to take all of them away, but I think that one of these, as we go through this list, there will be one of these that the Holy Spirit will be like, hmm, this is the one, right? Think about this one. This is the one for you. So don't, you don't need to worry about learning all of them, but just walk away with one of these eight. First of all, see God's mercy in giving us such powerful evidence for the truth of of his existence and for the reality that Jesus is the Messiah promised by God, who is our Savior. I mean, look at the mercy of God to, to give us this historical evidence so that when our faith is weak, we can open up the Bible and say, okay, 700 B.C., there's the prophecy. Okay, here's the descriptions of Jesus in the gospel. They match up. This could only happen if there is a God, and if Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Do you see how that works? So look at how God loves us. He knows we're weak. He knows we struggle. And so he gives us evidence. Here, here's some more. And the Bible is full. The, The historical evidence is massive in the scriptures. So see God's mercy to do that for us. Second, let this show you there is a God. I mean, there's thousands of reasons to believe in God's existence. This is one. But oh, this is one. Powerful, seven hundred B.C. The Book of Isaiah, historical document, predicting this the birth of this baby who would bring this region of Galilee light. Who this baby would be? God. I mean, and it's Jesus prophesied seven hundred years before time. Only God knows the future well enough to make that kind of a prophecy and prediction. There's a God. This is one of thousands of reasons why you should be persuaded that there's a God. So if if, if you walked in here this morning not being sure that there's a God, like I said, we are so glad you're here. And I would just, I would just like to gently push you to let this just open your mind some to maybe there is a God. What's going on here in Isaiah? Really, 700 B.C., how could that be? Think about it. Ponder it. Let this open your heart to the fact that there's a God, and I hope that that starts you on a journey that brings you to your knees before the cross and you're forgiven and restored to your Father, God. Third, understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent from God, whose death on the cross is the only way you can be forgiven for your sin and restored to God. I, th- I think some of you from living in this country for a while maybe have become less convinced that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven for your sins. You're mixing with people of other religions. We are called to respect them, absolutely. We should be willing to die for their ability to practice the way they believe, right? We're passionately committed to religious liberty. But sometimes rubbing shoulders can also start to rub or weaken your own faith that Jesus is the only way. Let this show you that Jesus is the only way. God has made a way for us to be forgiven. The way is Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's a way. God's provided a way. That way is Jesus. So let this strengthen you. Don't Don't become weak thinking, well, maybe there's other ways besides Jesus. There are no other ways. He's the way, the glorious way, prophesied 700 B.C. Fourth, when you're weak in faith, pray over this historical evidence. What do you do when you get weak in faith? What's on TV? What's in the refrigerator? Right. What do you do? Those don't work. Open up the Bible. Maybe have some brothers and sisters from the home group come and do this with you or just whatever. Do do it as soon as you can. Maybe it's just you by yourself. But pray over these massively beautiful historical evidences for God and for Jesus being the Son of God. And as you do that, you're honoring God's Word, and the Holy Spirit will come and strengthen your faith. So when you're weak in faith, pray over this historical evidence until the Holy Spirit strengthens you and meets you. Fifth, trust Jesus as your wonderful counselor. As I was praying over this, I think there may be some here where you are starting to pay more attention to your friend's counsel than to Jesus' counsel. Or paying more attention to your own counsel than to Jesus' counsel. In, In America, a lot of people, I think it's probably everywhere, you know, follow your heart, follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is very deceptive. Very deceptive. Follow Jesus. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Your heart's counsel or your friend's counsel is nothing and is wrong compared to Jesus' counsel where where they contradict. So, turn back to Jesus and his counsel. Okay. Sixth. Trust Jesus as the mighty God. Mighty, the mighty God. His might can change your heart. You might feel totally unspiritual. Even if there is a God, how is that going to help me? I'm I'm the most unspiritual person in this room. God can change your heart. He changed mine. That was me. He can change your heart. You may feel like you're so enslaved to some sin that it's hopeless for me. It is not hopeless for you. Jesus is the mighty God. And his power can set you free from that sin. He can. You can't. He can. And Jesus is the mighty God who's in control of whatever difficulties, trials you're facing. So trust Jesus as the mighty God. Trust him today. Two more. Trust Jesus as the everlasting Father. Jesus, that's his heart towards us. He has the heart of a father towards us. He loves you. He's patient towards you. He cares about you. Even if you have turned your back on him for years, he's still patient. The time is not too late yet. At some point, it will be too late. But the time is not too late yet. That's why you're here. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will celebrate your return Turn to him, patient father, loving father, faithful father. He will provide, he will guide, he will care. That's what he wants to do, and he will do that for all those who turn to him and trust him. So trust Jesus as your everlasting father. And then finally, trust Jesus as the prince of peace. Whenever we lack peace, it's always because we're not trusting Jesus. Every time. so helpful to see that. And it's helpful because then when you turn back, so Jesus, show me where I'm not trusting you. What am I not trusting about you? Help me. He will help you. So if you're not at peace right now, it's because you're not trusting Jesus. And he's standing before you saying, I will help you trust me. Turn to me. Ask me to help you. Confess your unbelief to me. I will forgive you. I will wash you clean. I will strengthen you and I will fill you with peace. So turn to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and he will fill you with peace. Let's stand together. Father, I pray that you would bring your power upon each of us here right now And that one of these takeaways, you'd be impressing on our hearts. Touch us, Lord. Persuade us, Lord. Impress upon us what you're saying to us, Lord. And We praise you for your mercy in giving us this prophecy from 700 BC so we can see it fulfilled 700 years later to strengthen us and to help us. And so, Lord, do that right now, I pray. We worship you. We worship you for your love for us. We worship you for Christmas. We worship you for having your son sent to earth to be born of a virgin. Jesus Christ, our Savior, we worship and praise you now.